0: The Old Testament lesson for today comes from Genesis 11, verses 1 through 9. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thanks be to God. One Ancient Hope, it's, it's good to be with you this morning, um, especially this, this Sunday before courses start. I know courses starting are starting at the university. Uh, courses are also starting for our children tomorrow, so this is, um, this is exciting. It's an exciting time to be here. And... Um, If this is your first time here at One Ancient Hope, we'd love to connect with you. Um, I'd love to talk with you after the service, or if you have any questions about the church or anything like that, please do reach out. Uh, My email is in the bulletin. I'd love to um, connect. But as the church, it is the Word of God that calls us together, that creates us, and that crafts us. So before we turn to these words of Scripture, let us come together together. Before God in prayer, God our Father, we thank you for this chance to come together. We thank you for your Word. We thank you, Lord, for what it tells us. We thank you for your will, for our good that's revealed into it, uh, revealed in it. And towards that end, Father God, we pray that you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, uh, hearts to feel. Lord, what we should. As we engage this passage together, we pray that your Spirit would be active in our midst. And we ask these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, in our our common culture, it's not uncommon to hear statements like the following. Statements like, there are many ways to God. Statements like, there are many avenues through which we can find God. It's said that through this spiritual practice, perhaps through this religion, um, any road, if it's traveled earnestly, will lead us to God or will lead us to some kind of spiritual fulfillment. Thus, we we should not be surprised when when Arthur C. Brooks, a columnist for The Atlantic, and a journal article, or a magazine article on faith and religion, Describes faith as, quote, your spiritual journey, as, quote, a spiritual adventure that is an adventure in and of itself. But we cannot underestimate the power of this framing, the overall effect on us and our understanding when we think of religious faith as a journey. Toward that end, uh, George Lakoff and Mark Johnson, in their, their classic book, Metaphors We Live By, they, they, they tell us just how powerful these framing metaphors can be. And one of the many examples that they offer is argument is war, the metaphor that argument is war. And they say this metaphor might not be explicit. But whether we know it or not, argument is war structures the way we think and we speak about arguments. It's deep down in our psyche, and and actually, we find the way it structures a number of examples from everyday speech. Uh, For example, they provide uh, sayings such as, Your claims are indefensible. He attacked every weak point in my argument. I demolished all his arguments. He shot down every one of my arguments. I've never won an argument with him. And so we see the language of war pervading the way we talk about arguments. And this makes us think of of arguments as a kind of battle of words between opposing parties. Toward that end, Lakoff and Johnson say the following, The argument is war metaphor is one that we live by in this culture. It structures the actions we perform when we are arguing. And what they're showing us is the power that comes from the way we frame things, the metaphors that we use to think about the things both in regular life, but those things that are nearest and dearest to us. So what about faith as a journey? What about faith as a journey, as a framing metaphor? Well, we see the way this structures a number of common sayings. For example, we've probably all heard phrases such as, everyone is on their own path. All roads lead to God. Go the way that seems right, to you. We are all spiritual seekers. Follow your own truth. Faith here is presented as a path, a road, a way, something sought, something followed. And all of these flow from that structuring metaphor of faith as a journey. But there's more. It's, It's not just that faith here is construed as a journey. It's that we are the ones who are taking the path, roughing the road and walking the way. Faith is our journey. It is our journey to God. But is this right? Is faith actually our journey to God? Well, let's think about it and consider that perhaps we've got the whole thing backwards. And I want to argue that this is exactly the message of the present text, the narrative of of Babel that we just had read. But before we dig into it, I, I do want to make a few preliminary remarks about this passage. As you've probably experienced, the account of Babel is a strange story, it strikes us as a strange account. In Babel, we're in the section of Scripture, Genesis 1 through 11, known as primeval history. And this history is not always easy to untangle. But towards that end, we have to know exactly what history is and what history isn't. And there's actually a Presbyterian Old Testament scholar at at Covenant Seminary, C. C. John Collins. And he says the following about history, which I think is helpful in terms of approaching this passage. He says, history is not a literary form. It is rather a way of referring to persons and events with a proper moral orientation. In any kind of history, however that history is told, real events are being communicated and they're being portrayed in a way that rightly orients a people to their past. They're enabled to understand where they are, where they should go, Sorry, where they have been. The writing of history allows an audience to rightly situate itself in the story that they find themselves. Without a history, persons do not know from where they have come, where they are, or where they should be going. So history here, especially when we think of Genesis 1 through 11, it's helping the audience situate themselves, helping us situate ourselves into a larger coherent narrative. It's helping us to make sense of our lives. And Collins gives us a number of questions that history, history of any kind, helps us to answer. Where did we come from? What does the good life look like? What has gone wrong? What has been done about it? What, where are we now in the whole process? And where is the whole thing headed? But Collins is not alone in saying that these are questions for which we need answers. Consider, for instance, the writer Leigh Stein in a recent New York Times editorial called The Empty Religions of Instagram. She also directs us to how important these kinds of questions are. In critiquing the modern tendency to look to Instagram influencers as our moral leaders, she says the following, That they quote, aren't challenging us to ask the fundamental questions that leaders of faith have been wrestling with for thousands of years. Why are we here? Why do we suffer? What should we believe in beyond the limits of our own puny self? Now, we may disagree on our respective answers to those questions. We might even say that there are no answers to these questions, depending on your perspective, but no one would say that these questions themselves are unimportant. And these questions will not go away. And I think in part, that's what gives a bit of the strangeness to Genesis 1 through 11. It answers these questions that we cannot ignore. Questions that stand as a kind of existential elephant in the room. And that's true of the present passage. As we'll see, Babel has much to say about the human situation, the human condition. And again, history is not a genre. And so historical events may be portrayed in a number of ways through a number of different genres. Christians may and actually do disagree what kind of genre or literary style by which Genesis 1 through 11 is communicating history. Different Christians may believe that these events are being recounted in more or less literary stylization. But nonetheless, Collins tells us that despite these disagreements, the following is clear of this passage. The shape of this sorry, quote, the shape of this biblical story assumes that all human beings have a common origin, a common predicament and a common need to know God and have God's image restored in them. So however strange these answers might be, we can't forget that they are actual answers. They're answers of weight. They're answers that matter. They're answers that affect our lives in significant ways. So the takeaway here is that however strange this passage might strike us, it means to tell us something very important, something universal about the human condition. But then... Fair enough. Someone might then ask, well, why are we looking at the Tower of Babel story in a series about Abraham? Well, there's a German Lutheran, uh, Old Testament scholar from the last century, and he makes an interesting point about Babel. If you look at every other story within Genesis 1 through 11, you find a pattern of God's judgment and God's grace, God's judgment, God's grace. Adam and Eve experience judgment, but then they're given the promise of the seed that will come to crush the head of the serpent. Cain himself, for murdering his brother, receives a judgment, but then he receives the promise of protection and perseverance of his life from God. In the judgment of the flood, we find God giving Noah the promise that he will preserve and protect his creation. But not so with Babel. As Von Rod says, the story about the Tower of Babel concludes with God's judgment on mankind. There is no word of grace. But we are not without hope because Babel itself serves as the introduction to God's next act of grace. What Babel is meant to do is to make us wonder, has God finally turned his back on wayward humanity? Is this the last religious straw? And it's only with this question in mind are we ready for what's next. As Van Rad goes on to write, Only then is the reader properly prepared to take up the strange new thing that now follows the comfortless story about the building of the tower, the election, and the blessing of Abraham. So what this story is doing is setting up the Abraham narrative, which we will begin looking at next week. But because it does this, it tells us something important. The story of Babel tells us something deep, something universal about the human condition. It diagnoses something that ails all of us. Well, what does it tell us? What is going on here? Well, let's return to that metaphor of, of faith as a journey. Is this a new metaphor? Well, as we'll see, this is very much the same metaphor that the builders of Babel are operating with. They have to go somewhere to get to God. They have to journey to a place. They have to journey upwards. And so we see faith as our journey to God is a kind of universal human metaphor. Look with me at Genesis 11:3 through 4. And they said to one another, "Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly." And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, "Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the earth. Well, commentators will point out that the building in mind here is probably what's known as a, as a ziggurat. And a ziggurat was an ancient Meso- Mesopotamian temple structure. It was a place where acts of, of worship were performed to the gods that the people served. And we find here that the temple is meant to reach to heaven, that it's meant to reach to the home, to the place of the gods. But then a question comes up. How is it that a place that's meant to worship gods is also meant to be a place where the builders make a name for themselves, where the builders themselves become great? Who's being made great here, the gods or the people? Well, toward that end, um, a theologian from the last century, Karl Barth, is, is very helpful in untangling what is going on here. At one point in his writings, he looks at the Babylonian creation myth the Enuma Elish. And, and what's important here is that this myth finishes with the gods creating humans. And the humans are meant to be servants. The humans are created to render service to the gods, to give them the service that they require. What happens is the humans are created because the gods need them. As Bart writes, the gods themselves need completion. They are in their way weak and helpless. These gods are subject to the same demands of hunger, of thirst, of fatigue. What they want is rest and relief and they want it from the humans. And so Bart concludes, quote, "Man is surely as much the lord of the gods as the gods lords over him." We may calmly ask indeed if there is any true or final distinction between him and these gods. The gods of the ziggurat that were believed to dwell above Babel, they needed the humans. And really, what greater greatness is there for the human than to be needed by the gods themselves? And if that's the case, then these are gods that we can approach on our own terms. We just need to go up. Any suitable technique will work. We can bake bricks like the builders of Babel, or we could cut stone. As long as we can stack them one on top of another and go upwards, any suitable technique will work. And this is not so different than us from the way that we relate to God. We believe that there's many ways to get there. All we need to do is to go up. We might have different techniques. It might be a certain kind of religious attitude, a certain kind of religious consciousness. It might be a certain kind of experience. It might be a certain awe of nature. It might be a certain technique of self-talk, a certain technique of mindfulness, a certain technique of prayer. But whatever the technique, all we need to do is move upwards because it's our journey to God. It doesn't matter if the way is paved with brick or with stone. We merely need to keep walking keep searching, keep exploring. But the problem here is that it undercuts the distinction between the creator and the creature, between God and between us. If we can simply journey up to God, well, the distinction isn't so great. He's at a height that is reachable. He's not so much greater than us. He's not so much higher above us. But this is not the God that we meet in Babel. Look with me at Genesis 11.5. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. To be sure, God knows everything. There's a a theologian from uh, the medieval times, Thomas Aquinas, and he famously said, God knows all things by knowing himself. Everything that exists, exists because God creates and sustains it. Everything that happens, happens because God has sovereignly ordained it. God knows exactly what they're doing at Babel, but what we find here is a piece of literary stylization. God is portrayed as having to come down and stoop just to see what is happening. And there's a deep irony here because the building itself is meant to reach towards the heaven, but God who is in the heavens has to actually come down even to get a glance of it. And the story is telling us by our own efforts, our own techniques, our own churning, we are not getting any closer to God. We're still out of his sight. It would be like me arguing with one of my children, telling them that I'm closer to the moon than they are. I I might just be a few feet higher, but I'm in no better place to reach out and reach out and reach out and try to grab a hold of the moon. I'm never going to grab it. God is greater than we think, and we cannot reach him by our own efforts. In fact, he doesn't need us. It's not like the gods of Babel who need humans to be fulfilled. We cannot be great by fulfilling the needs of God. This is a very different kind of God. As Rowan Williams, a theologian and actually former Archbishop of Canterbury, writes about this, and and he, he frames it in such a way that really is a total contrast to what we find at Babel. He says, to say that we are unilaterally dependent on God is to recognize that God alone is beyond the precarious exchanges of creatures who need affirmation. But then he goes on. He makes an important point. He says, properly understood, this is the most liberating affirmation we could ever here, I can never be defined by the job of meeting God's needs. Contrary to the builders of Babel, God does not need us. We are beyond, he, sorry, He is beyond any rest, any relief, any affirmation that we could offer. He is so far beyond us that we could never journey to Him. But at the same time, we, we need him. We need him dearly. We need him desperately. And we cannot escape or ignore this need. I want to return here to, to Lay Stein in her New York Times editorial. And she says the following um, about how she's navigating the recent pandemic. She says, quote, I have survived the pandemic so far by performing the role of tough cookie and shielding myself with cynicism. The only times I've cried have been when religion has punctured the bubble. I cried when the Reverend Raphael Warnock spoke at John Lewis's funeral. I cried when Garth Brooks sang Amazing Grace a cappella at the Biden inauguration. And perhaps surprisingly, hiding here in plain sight is the answer to our religious, to our spiritual dilemma, our only hope concerning God. Think about the words of Amazing Grace. They've they've become iconic, but we cannot let them, for that reason, become quaint. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see. I once was lost, but now am found. What is it that these words tell us? Well, they tell us that it's not about finding God. It's about being found by God. We did not find him. God found us. Yes, faith is a journey, but it's not our journey to God. Rather, it's God's journey to us. And we've had the whole thing backwards. To say that all roads lead to God only makes sense if we are the ones who are doing the journeying. However, if he is the one that journeys to us, well, then that's an entire different thing. And this should not surprise us if God is so far above us. We cannot go up to him. He must come down to us. Even more, if he does not need us, then anything that he does for us must be for our good. We do not provide him with rest, with relief, with affirmation. And that's an important point because we live in a cynical age and to be sure, that cynicism is not wholly without cause. We are rightly wary of who we trust, who we give our allegiance to. We're overwhelmed by the number of self-help gurus and and spiritual sages who, who tell us that they have something that we need. But in the end, they need us to buy their books. As Stein goes on to write, quote, I have hardly prayed to God since I was a teenager, but the pandemic has cracked open inside me a profound yearning for reverence. I have an overdraft on my outrage account. I want moral authority from someone who isn't shilling a memoir or calling out her enemies on social media for clout. Why is it important that God came down to Babel? Well, because he does not need us. All that he does with us is for us, not for him. As Rowan Williams, the theologian I quoted earlier, goes on to write, only one power is entirely gift, entirely directed away from its needs, for it has none. And this, of course, is God. And he's not shilling a memoir He's not doing what he does for social media account. All he does for us is pure, simple, absolute gift. And for that reason, we can trust him. But just how deep, how deep is this gift? Well, Babel is not the only time that God came down. He came down again, and he came down lower than we could ever possibly imagine. He did not peer down from heaven this time, but he came down and became one of us. He came down and experienced hunger, poverty, betrayal, injustice, pain, and suffering. He came down, very, very far down. In the incarnation, in Jesus Christ, God became human. He came down to us and he came down to find us. This is not the journey from earth to heaven like we find in Babel. This is the journey from heaven to earth. This is not faith that is built upon finding but a faith that is built upon being found. And in Christ, God has found us. But it's not the case that we're only mere creatures. It's also the case that we have fallen into sin. While God is the God who comes down below the other, we are the ones who seek to put ourselves above the other. And we see this directly, we see this clearly at Babel. At first glance, the builders of Babel might seem like a really strong community. They're all gathered together around a common purpose. But think about what that common purpose actually is. They want to make their name great. They want to become great. And that's not a purpose that can hold a community together. To be great is to be greater than someone else. It's to set yourself against the other. To seek to make your name great just is to seek to make someone else's name forgotten. And this cannot hold together a community. Others become only means, only instruments intended to make you great. And so what does God do? He comes down and confuses the languages. This stops the work. And to be sure, this stopping is itself a gift. God does not desire that we go on deceiving and destroying ourselves. Building Babel is not a good thing, and in his mercy, he stops the building. But what about different languages? Are we meant to understand different languages as a curse? No. If we look at sorry, if we look at what directly precedes Babel in Genesis 10, we find the table of nations, and it shows the wonderful diversity of people who populated the ancient Near Eastern world. And this is placed before Babel so that we would understand this diversity as a gift from God. But what is going on here? Well, I believe that what is happening is this linguistic diversity is helping to diagnose the pride of Babel. It's a kind of x-ray wherein we can see below the surface and see the deep structure of what's actually going on. Nowhere in Scripture do different languages eliminate communication or cooperation, and even in Genesis 10 and the Table of Nations, we find examples of interactions across these cultural and linguistic distinctions. But think about our own experience. Think about communicating across cultures, communicating across linguistic divisions. It can be difficult, but as we all know, it's it's important, and we have much to learn by doing so. But when we communicate across cultural and linguistic divides, it's a rich lesson in humility, because we have to set aside our assumptions, and we have to stop work hard to understand, and we have to listen much more than we talk. But of course, Babel lacks this humility because Babel is based upon pride, the pride of making ourselves great. And certainly, people whose number one aim is to make themselves great are going to refuse to patiently work hard to understand the other. We can imagine the person speaking louder and louder and louder until eventually it's just a cacophony of angry voices. This only could have dispersed this people if they had no interest in taking time to truly understand the other. And so the confusion of languages doesn't ultimately push them apart. What it does is expose that they were never actually a community in the first place. They were gathered together at the expense of the other. But even here, in linguistic diversity, God also finds us. Think about Acts chapter two in, in Pentecost, and we have the, the message of the gospel, the message of Christ being declared in a number of different languages. God is coming to people. He's finding them. He's sharing his messages, His message, in the language that they understand. Even here, he is the God that crosses boundaries and comes to us. And what is told? Well, it's the sweetest of all messages. It's the message of rest and relief. Remember that the builders of Babel tried to provide rest and relief for their gods. But the message of Scripture is that God provides rest and relief for us. And we need this rest and relief. Stein in her article goes on to quote a self-help guru one with hundreds of thousands of followers and this person writes quote a journalist once asked me with the onslaught of bad news and endless needs how do you not quit i said oh i do quit quitting is my favorite every day i quit every single day begin and quit every day only way to survive embrace quitting as a spiritual practice we can relate We feel a number of pressures every day. The pressures of our own needs, the pressures of future choices, the pressures of vocations, the pressures of relationships, the pressures of school, the pressures of all the many things that are wrong in the world. And we feel crushed under this weight, and we should, because these are deep, heavy things. And they are more than we can bear. But ask yourself, are you weary? do you feel as if you don't measure up to everything that you're supposed to do? Do you feel that you don't measure up to God? When you think about God, do you feel a sense of burden and a sense of guilt? Do you know that you don't measure up to the standard? Well, let me tell you that you don't, and that's the whole point. That's why Christ came to find us. That's why God came down. And so oddly enough, there's wisdom in this person's words. Quit. In fact, don't just quit every day. Quit every hour. Quit every minute. Quit every second. Quit trying to reach God. Quit trying to make yourself great in the eyes of the world. Quit building Babel. When I was a kid, I remember hearing that the, the worst thing you can do when you're, when you're lost is actually move from where you are and go look for, for your parents. Instead, what you should do is is stay in one place and let them find you. And the interesting thing here is is that's not that much different than our actual spiritual or religious situation. Are you lost? Well, let God find you right now. You don't need to go off. You don't need to search. You don't need to go and make yourself better. You don't need to put it off until you stop this bad habit or this bad practice. That is simply building Babel. This is not your journey to God. This is God's journey to you. Put down all the burdens you carry and place them on Christ, who just is God. Come to find us. As Christ tells us in Matthew 11, such sweet words. Come to me. All who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Christ Himself takes the heavy burdens that we cannot bear. Those things that rightly make us want to quit, He Himself has borne the punishment we deserve for our own building of Babel, our own desires of making ourselves great, of submitting both God and neighbor to our needs, to relating them relating to them on our own terms, the pressures we feel for not measuring up. Yet he also gives us rest. He has lived the perfect life of humility and love and worship before God and neighbor, and you can trust him. So put your faith in him. Give him all of your guilt and burdens and receive his righteousness and then quit and breathe and rest. In his confessions, Augustine offers the following prayer. O Lord, command what you will and give what you command. O Lord, command what you will and give what you command. This is a prayer that recognizes that God's relation to us is pure and simple gift. It's the recognition that we do not find God that God finds us. It's a recognition Recognition that, yes, faith is a journey, but it's not God's journey to us. Oh, sorry, it's, it's God's journey to us and not the other way around because we are not seeking to provide rest and relief for God. The gospel is that God has provided rest and relief to us. Let us pray. God, our Father, we thank you that you have come to us. We thank you that you have found us. We thank you that you have no self-interest for us and that all you do for us is pure gift. We thank you, Lord, that as Augustine says, the humility of God heals the pride of humanity. Help these words sink ever deeper into our minds, into our hands, into our hearts. Amen.